Hey guys, this is the second episode of the Understanding Russia podcast. My name is Alek Rostamov. And I'm Stefan Stianov. And we are going to talk about Russia and its foreign policy in the next 30 minutes. After our talk with Professor Trenin about Russia's global policy, this time we decided to be a little bit more specific. For those of you who know Russian, you may have heard the expression Pushkin Nashvsyo, meaning that Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin is Russia's all. Everything in Russian literature begins and finishes with the name of the great author. However, this is quite strange because Russia has a lot more and great worldwide recognized writers, such as Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Chekhov, but everything goes around the name of one person, Pushkin. Talking about international relations, it seems that Russia has a Pushkin on its own in her foreign policy, and it's called the United States. Yes, Moscow tries to develop relations with China, India, and even the European Union, but the shadow of a white bald eagle is there all the time. What will the Americans think? What will they say? How will they react? And so on. And here with us to discuss the role of the United States in Russia's foreign policy concept and policy itself is Dr. Dmitry Novikov, the deputy head and associated professor in the School of International Affairs at HSC, as well as the de deputy head of the International Laboratory on World Order Studies and the New Regionalism. Professor Novikov, first of all, we are very glad that you have accepted our invitation. Um, tell us, are really the United States Russia's Pushkin in foreign affairs? Do you find our metaphor appropriate? Uh, thank you so much. That's an interesting question. Well, first of all, hello to everybody. And I would say that, uh, well, you know, Pushkin is our everything, is a very Russian proverb. But actually, in the West, Russia is uh, famous as a Dostoevsky country, right? Very gloomy, depressing, uh, well... And I would say that Dostoevsky is a much better writer to describe U.S.-Russia relations. Because if we speak about U.S.-Russia relations, it's in many respects about complexity, you know, an attempt to overcome something you are not supposed to overcome, actually. Well, some of the pretty moral things. And uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty depressing if you look at the, at the history because there were some ups and downs, but regarding your question, meaning that if the United States of America is a kind of, well, center soil of Russian foreign policy, well, historically, yes. And um, uh, this story starts from the end of the World War II, of course, when the United States of America became a superpower. And uh, uh, from the very beginning, of course, uh, it was not only about uh, the U.S. Uh, central role in the West, uh, strategic role, because it's, that was a, an objective situation. Stalin, of course, was concerned about the um, U.S. strategic superiority, about uh, the U.S. Uh, strategic and political presence in different regions. Um, he actually even um, tried to play a good guy from the very beginning, uh, not Sovietizing or partially Sovietizing the East European states. He even played like, well, I, I constructed some kind of coalition government there because, yeah, he understood that probably the US, uh, their uh, exceptional isolationism, 
could lead to withdrawal of U.S. forces or at least minimizing U.S. political presence in different regions, he failed. And actually, U.S. Uh, institutionalized as a world superpowers, uh, the mightiest uh, country in the world with nukes, uh, with nuclear weapons in the arsenal, uh, with well-developed missiles, strategic bombers, and of course that was kind of a objective reality. And still, U.S. remains uh, and is considered by Russian government as a key threat, right? Objective threat. But I would add here. Something very kind of Dostoevsky-like uh, problem. It's a problem of status, of course. And uh, kind of the second dimension of uh, Soviet-slash-Russian slash Russian, uh, policy towards the United States of America was, of course, an attempt to achieve equal status with the United States. We can clearly see it in Stalin's policies. We can clearly see it in Khrushchev's policies. Being weaker uh, from military and economic point of view, he focused on some kind of very aggressive, uh, well, um, uh, proactive policy, right? With this Berlin crisis, then the Cuban Missile Crisis. His task was to set up some kind of ground for fundamental negotiations with the West, and finally, even despite Khrushchev was dismissed in 1964, uh, his successor Brezhnev was able to reach it, right? Uh, signing the SALT agreements and uh, the Helsinki Accords was considered as, yes, finally they got us as equal, finally they got us serious. We are uh, also a superpower, we are equal to the United States of America and still, we, if we see, if we look at the Russian uh, foreign policy today, uh, it's still a very influential factor, a very influential driver of our policies. We want to kind of direct negotiations with Washington. We don't want to negotiate with their satellites or minor partners well, uh, it was directly expressed by uh, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, and uh, some of the key officials like Patrushev, that direct negotiations with uh, uh, the United States of America is our aim, not only objective, right, because it's an effective way to solve problems, but also kind of subjective. We would be equal negotiator within such a format of interaction. Let's go back 30 years ago, when both countries tried to re-establish their relations. There is a very widespread theory, which I personally tend to find fair to some extent. The essence of it lies in the idea that because of the US approach to Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia started to feel it's being treated as the second-rate country with no national interests. In my viewpoint, Russia and what's more important, ordinary Russians have lost the feeling of significance in the international arena. Furthermore, they have obtained the sense of disregard in relation to the Russian sovereign national interest, even though people themselves might not formulate it in the terms of international politics. Uh, but I somehow believe that Russians are very sensitive to those feelings. Here I could refer to probably the most famous journalist in Russia, Vladimir Pozner, who expresses very similar opinion on what I mentioned. Dmitry Trenin also points out that Russian society cannot put up with the idea of being dictated to, which means the ignorance of its foreign policy vision. 
I could only guess, but to me, this approach was the determining factor that step by step led to the current situation. How would you view this kind of estimation? Do you think something different was an American blunder towards Russia back to the time when the Soviet Union ceased to exist? Well, that's a, that's a very understandable but very difficult question, I would say, because uh, the reflection over the last 30 years of our relations. Well, it's still undergoing, and I think uh, that a lot of experts in U.S.-Russia relations, uh, the experts in Russian studies in the West, experts in American studies in the East, would uh, well would study this thirty years. Uh, well, when uh, Russia and the West started the kind of new wave of confrontation in 2014. Uh, there was a huge discussion about it. I remember Bob Legwald wrote uh, a book, The Cold War II, trying to explain why Russia was not uh, integrated to the West. Uh, Angela Strand wrote uh, a monography, uh, Why Russia and USA Does Not uh, Listen to Each Other or better say, hear each other, right? Uh, so uh, there were a lot of speculations about it, and probably Angela Strand was one of the, well, uh, one of the experts to be uh, very close to explaining of this. We just simply didn't hear each other and uh, didn't want uh, to do it. Because um, um, this is true, Russian concerns uh, never was... Um, undertaken 100% seriously by the West. Um, I would say same about uh, Western concerns and explanations in Russian expert and official narrative, because Russia also was not, uh, didn't pay a lot of attention to many um, Western concerns. So I would say that that's kind of problem on both sides. And uh, if we speak about Russian, uh, concerns and uh, uh, Russian uh, foreign policy narrative. You know, you mentioned uh, Dmitry Trenin. Um, I would quote uh, another outstanding expert, uh, my teacher, Professor Karaganov, right? Who once called it um, a Weimar policy in velvet gloves, right? Meaning that uh, it was kind of recreation, uh, repeat of the policies the West implemented towards uh, the uh, Weimar Republic. Uh, so from one point it was kind of democratized, uh, it was integrated to the West, but Germany at that time seeked for a totally different status. They got used to feel itself like a great power with a significant national interest, with a significant status inside the Western community, and with a political power to change the world. Not even just region, but to change the world. No any global decision could be implemented without kind of opinion from Berlin at that time. And of course, they felt depressed after the end of the World War I. Uh, the results of this policies was dramatic. 
we all know when the Great Depression started, uh, the social and economic system of the Weimar Republic collapsed and Hitler came to power. And uh, these um, post-Weimar moods, post-World War I moods, was a strong fuel for revanchism and for challenging their international order. Uh, so basically, Russia also was dissatisfied with its place uh, inside the international order after the end of the World War, uh, uh, the Cold War, right? Uh, because actually, what was uh, their uh, Russian vision of it? Uh, so basically, it was like, well, we all won the Cold War because uh, the West won strategically and Russians won it kind of politically, because we were able to overthrow the communist regime, right? So, so we, we Russians ended the, the Cold War, right? It's not like Americans were able to defeat us. It's not like kind of like during the uh, First and Second World War. It's just kind of people, the Soviet Union demanded for more freedom. Yes, it's kind of a little bit primitive picture, of course. Uh, however, uh, the narrative was that, well, you need to integrate us, right? You need to, um, uh, you need to um, uh, treat us like a great power, like equal to you. Well, if not equal to um, the United States of America in the 90s, Russia did not demand it. Uh, but at least like, I don't know, Germany, France, so very privileged partner. Uh, and partially, West did it, but rather on a symbolical uh, level, because Russia became a member of G8. Uh, Russia have had uh, exclusive relations with the United States of America, including very close personal relations between uh, Boris Yeltsin and uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, the relations between European Union and Russia, and actually... Even the exclusive Russia-German relations also started in this period. So from this perspective, the West think that it gives it gives to Russia everything it could, right? Russia is a part of the party, right? For However, uh, for Russia, it was not enough. And here we move to the realm of uh, totally different strategic cultures. You know, at that time, late 80s, uh, 90s, it was a time of emergence of constructivism as one of the kind of new, very significant and influential theories of international relations. And probably, uh, uh, probably constructivism explains these differences in, um, uh, in perception in uh, the best way. Uh, Russia... And Russian strategic culture was still very modern, let's put it like that. We consider ourselves as a great power in the categories of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century. What means that Russia started to demand, well, kind of exclusive uh, role in the European uh, security, kind of spheres of influence, or at least something like kind of a buffer zone. And uh, all these concerns started to be more and more influential in the 2000s when Russia overcame this process of transit, 
it started to um, uh, reconsolidate power um, domestically and uh, uh, became a rising power internationally. While the West went to a little bit different realm and a little bit different understanding of international relations. Well, kind of, well, it's that's risky to mention it, but postmodern, right? So uh, forget about this uh, spheres of influence and 19th century type security and 19th century type politics. You are part of global party. You're part of global elites. You should be integrated, not kind of even institutionally, but uh, on the level of uh, inter relations in the open global world and so on. And it seems that Russian, Russian never accepted it, finally. It seems that Russia kind of um, it's, uh, moved to these more traditional foreign policy views. And uh, it seems that Russia... Uh, or at least Russian leadership today think that doing this, they are on the right side of the history. That the West was wrong or the West lied when they thought in this postmodern way. That Russia is right, preparing itself for a more chaotic, old-fashioned world like it is today with wars as a reality, European war as a reality, military instruments as a reality, and probably uh, the overcoming of this gap between Russian and Western perception of the Russia-West relations and of the global politics as it is, maybe it will take decades because the only way to solve this contradiction is kind of experiment, right? It could be uh, solved only empirically. Russia is on the right side of history, or West is on the right side of history. But what exactly is the problem between Russia and the United States? Is it a structural one or uh, maybe ideological, geopolitical, or the two countries are just too stubborn and they cannot talk to each other and reach a consensus? Well, I talk about kind of fundamental, right, reason which I consider to be, well, at least one of the most important, right? Of course, we can speak about concrete issues. It's, of course, uh, well, European security. Since the 90s, uh, the um, kind of the struggle was uh, to what, what, what kind of model of European security should, be, uh, should, should we construct? And uh, in the beginning of the 90s, 1993, 1994, uh, the West, the United States of America decided that we need to focus on NATO. NATO centered um, the uh, European security. Well, it's pretty understandable why. However, it was um, pretty unacceptable for Russia. And at first in the 90s, uh, even Yeltsin administration uh, tried to resist against it, saying that, well, it should be OSCE-centered because within the OSCE, we are kind of equals, right? Then, if you remember the beginning of 2000, uh, Putin being an elected president, say, well, I do not exclude membership of Russia in NATO. Uh, of course, uh, well, it's difficult to say if it was serious or not. However, it was an attempt of zone ditch. Right? To what extent 
NATO, the West are ready to speak seriously about treating Russia like an equal. Okay, we are like Germany or France, a huge partner of the United States of America, which should be respected and should be inside the club, right? Uh, so, and uh, then it was a NATO-Russia council uh, established in 2002, which was considered as an exclusive institution of uh, bilateral dialogue on, uh, um, on European security. And uh, then it was Bucharest Summit uh, 2008, right? Which um, proclaimed the next wave of uh, NATO expansion. And Russia considered it as a, well, this is a threat. This is, this is a demonstration. They, they do not treat us seriously. Even if we kind of do not speak in categories, well, objective categories, right? It's not like, well, Georgia was a, such a significant threat to Russia. Let's put it like that. But politically, it was unacceptable. You go, kind of, you cross the red line, right? Uh, so, and from this perspective, once again, uh, we can kind of uh, analyze this problem from realist geopolitical point of view that US, West spread its objective sphere of influence, Russia don't like it. We can also interpret it in a constructive way, constructivist way, saying that, well, expansion of NATO was treated like well, it was a problem of status, problem of perception, because Russia securitized it very much, saying that that's unacceptable, while for the West it was not a security issue at all. And uh, I think that both of these interpretation, uh, interpretations works, and uh, security, European security, is just one of the problems, right? So I spoke a lot now about NATO, about the problem of European security, but that's is only one of the problems and within each of them the problem of status the problem of russian participation in their international uh well financial economic and political infrastructure the problem of post-soviet space and uh, relations in the post-soviet space you can treat from Russian point of view, it's like the zone of privileged interest, just like Latin America from the American point of view. It is not, right? In each of these problems, you can find this problem of interpretations first. And at the same time, you can treat it like kind of an objective clash of interests. So from this perspective, I call you to use different theoretical prisms. Uh, perfectly understand that that's all of them has kind of part of truth of this grand picture. Despite all the contradictions, we see that the USA and Russia cooperate in some spheres, or at least they have their communication channels. Which are the most significant spheres of cooperation that should last for long? Well, I think that, uh, of course, what you speak about today, or, well, to date is, of course, uh, strategic stability. And uh, this is something uh, what both sides consider treats like a sacred cow, right? Because uh, we, we tried to um, uh, build up a number of formats and a number of channels uh, of communication uh, since the end of the Cold War. We tried to enlarge the agenda 
and uh, there were kind of different uh, formats like um, Chernomid and Gore uh, Joint Commission in the late 90s, uh, which was focused on um, economy and trade and investment. Okay, let's let's make Russia and US very significant trade partners like China and US. It will stabilize relations. It didn't work, right? Well, that was also Obama Medvedev Commission, which focused on a lot of issues. Reset was an attempt to reconsider relations fundamentally. We have cybersecurity, we had talks on uh, strategic stuff, we can have talks on even human rights, we had talks on, of course, economic relations, innovations, because at that time it was very important for Medvedev administration, technological cooperation. Well, let's just make cultural and humanitarian uh, and uh, as a professor of university, I would say that, yes, at that time, it was possible to um, find partners in the United States of America. We had a direct channel of experts and uh, academic dialogue with Harvard University and a number of other universities. There was so-called uh, working group on the future of U.S.-Russia relations with a bunch of significant experts from Harvard University, Columbia, George Washington, and uh, other American university going to Russia and speak very frankly, speaking very frankly and very openly on U.S.-Russia relations from academic point of view. Uh, so it was truly a time of many uh, dimensions of cooperation on different levels. But the problem is it's, it, it, it never worked, right? Why? That's a difficult question. I as, 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 as I tried to interpret it before, it's because of fundamental difference of interpretations, right? That's, that's true. Russia never accepted its role inside the US-led international order. And uh, from this perspective, all these attempts to boost up the agenda uh, where uh, they failed. The only uh, institutionalized uh, channel of cooperation, part of uh, bilateral agenda, is a strategic dialogue and dialogue on strategic, um, strategic uh, stability, of course. Because that is something about uh, mutual survival. That is something you cannot ignore, disregarding uh, what you think about your partner. And uh, even today, just uh, I believe a week ago, something like that, Sergei Narishkin, the head of Russian intelligence, met with uh, the CIA heads in Turkey talking about strategic security. It was, at least it was official, uh, official agenda uh, they declared. We talk about nukes. We talk about mutual survival. And it is reality since 50s, actually, when we got hydrogen bombs and when two superpowers accepted responsibility for the whole humanity. I believe that it is uh, at the same time a very positive element of US-Russia relations because it's still a channel uh, of dialogue which always work. And if you start a process of reconsideration relations on reproachment, you always can use this channel to boost relations. 
let's talk about nukes and then let's talk about something else, right? Because that's kind of a fundamental issue. But at the same time, it's a curse because uh, as a result of it, uh, uh, approaches of two powers towards each other remain very, very highly securitized. Recently, there was an article in the Atlantic called The Russian Empire Must Die. Uh, now, this is a metaphor from Western perspective that Russia needs to change its mindset. Uh, they don't have a special role in history, that uh, Russia's values are not the ones, you know, the one true values that the world should follow, um, that also Moscow needs to respect international law and so on. But uh, we can see exactly the same criticism from Moscow towards the United States. How much alike are those two countries, actually? Well, they are to some extent very similar, and that's also explanation why we have such a, such a complicated relations. You know, there was no any significant uh, problem or conflict between Christianity and Buddhism, because these two religions are very, very far from each other. And uh, Christianity and uh, Islam always were very close, because both of them are have the same structure, the same myth in, in the very core. And that is probably why they have so, so many contradictions, so many conflicts, because similarity um, can, well, you, have, you might have conflict only with something similar, only with something you understand, right? And from this perspective, Russia and America are very close to each other mentally, culturally. We both are very messianic. Americans is a, is a messianic nation. Uh, from the very beginning, since Mayflower, um, uh, Mayflower agreements, uh, they consider themselves as a city on the hill. Uh, and uh, if uh, in the 19th century it was a matter of example, we are going to make a society which is the best in the world and all others would just watch us and think, wow, how cool are these guys? In the 20th century, it turned into an attempt to change the world. Well, spread the word, right, about uh, such a good political system. In case of Russia, it's uh, pretty the same. We are a very messianic uh, nation. Uh, it was about orthodox Christianity in the 19th century. It was about even more zealot religion in the 20th century, meaning communism, of course. Communism was to some extent also a religion, right? And we wanted to spread our uh, way of life, our domestic system, our ideas uh, to the whole world. And from this perspective, uh, still Russia remains uh, pretty messianic, even without ideology, right? We still want to save the world. And we need to, an enemy to save the world. And from this perspective, well, you know, there is a proverb. Uh, you can judge about your own importance, uh, judging from the enemy you choose, right? From this perspective, who can we choose as an enemy, right? Well, the United States of America is the mightiest country in the world. And from this perspective, yes, Russia tries to save the world from the United States of America, from American imperialism, uh, it does not require an exit ideology to spread. 
It's just a superhero complex. And from this perspective, yes, we are very, very similar to Americans. I have a very simple question, maybe the silly one. It's absolutely obvious that Russia's threat to the United States dominance is a way less considerable than the Chinese one. However, Russia and its president, even before the ongoing events in Ukraine, were main targets to blame in the American media. Am I naive in this particular view that in the media level, Russia and its president is being represented as the embodiment of evil, while the U.S. has more serious challenges? And if so, could you share your own vision why this happens? Well, yes, you are... Well, it's not you are naive, right? That's probably media are a little bit naive. But I would say that it's actually not true. But, well, partly not true. Because if we look at the American, the U.S. national security strategy, pretty clearly they say that China is a, is a more important threat, more important, not threat, challenge, right? Than Russia. Russia is kind of ongoing challenge. But strategically, it's China. So the, the, the expertise, the professionals perfectly understand the situation. But if we speak about media, well, media are always stupid, right? That stupidity is what we like about media because it's, it's a part of us either. Sometimes we want to switch off our brains, right? And to, 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 look, uh, to, to, to switch to Telegram or to TikTok or to New York Times. Intellectually, it's pretty the same now. So, uh, but basically, yes, of course, uh, the media represented Russia as, a, as an evil by two reasons. Well, first of all, by three reasons, I would say. Well, first of all, this is true in the moment. Uh, Russia challenges the West more harshly than Chinese. Chinese are pretty calm. They are not kind of sending aircraft carriers or troops somewhere. They go step by step. Russia is pretty brutal. From this perspective, yes, when Russia started operation in Syria uh, several years ago, or when Russia started operation in Ukraine several months ago, both times it was shocking the West. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, it is a matter of kind of political calculation, I would say, because the US-China relations are very complex and still a lot of influential groups benefit from this relation on both sides. I mean, in the United States of America and in China, you should be careful about it because the trade-over is still huge, a lot of investments, a lot of kind of cooperation between them. If you look at the US-Russia uh, trade over, it's, well, it's nothing, actually. Several, uh, well, 30 or 40 billion on the top in the best moment of relations before Crimea. It's nothing for US, it's actually not a lot for Russia. In case of US-China, the situation is different, so media and politicians are more careful. We, need, uh, we, we see a very, very gradual process of rising of anti-China moods in the United States of America, uh, and same comes about China, right? And uh, the third reason why Russia uh, is a bad guy in the American media, I think is that because uh, because we are closer mentally, uh, people understand Russia. 
you know, people just understand what is Russia, right? China is something like it's like I don't know Mars attacks, right? You don't know whether it, from the Western point of view, Russia always was a part of the Western cultural narrative. Uh, kind of that's that's a that's a gloomy guy in, who who just like uh, like in Dostoevsky, c- crime and um, punishment takes a tool and kills a granny, right? That's, that's that's horrible. We we know what is it. That's that's uh, that's something we need to oppose. And from this perspective, yes, of course, uh, Putin is much more understandable enemy for the West uh, than Xi Jinping or the Chinese elites. To finish our discussion, let's talk a little bit more about domestic policy. We all know what happened in the midterm elections, but how would they affect the relations with Russia, if they affect them at all? And um, let's just speculate a little bit for a moment. How are the US-Russia relations going to look after, let's say, after five years? Well, you know, it's very difficult to make any analysis about the future today. you know, several years ago, I actually uh, uh, lost a battle of uh, champagne uh, when I said that Hillary Clinton is going to become a president of the United States in 2016. A lot of people, a lot of people actually did the same, right? And that's, uh, that's a demonstration that um, we live in a very unpredictable times. Well, structurally, we can say that uh, nothing fundamental would happen in the U.S.-Russia relations within the next three, five years, definitely, because that's a conflict for um, for long. That's a fundamental stru- structural conflict, and it doesn't, it does not, um, uh, it's not very serious, but uh, not serious what administration is going to run the United States of America, Democratic or Republican one. If Trump or DeSantis change Biden in uh, 2024, uh, nothing would change significantly because, uh, because of two reasons. The first one, these uh, differences in perceptions uh, they are still they are still here, right? That's something what I uh, mentioned in the very first uh, very first answer, right? When we spoke about the nineties, and uh, secondly, of course, uh, when Russia started uh, this uh, operation in Ukraine, the Russian leadership perfectly understood that. Um, it is something for quite a long that it's not like in a year or two years we are uh, going to business as usual that's a long-term confrontation it is very difficult to say how long it is going to um, to take because when us and uh, the soviet union stabilized relations in the 70s it took just 10 years and everything collapsed and experts still say, well, that's uh, the most stable uh, model of relations between two superpowers in the whole history. But it just it was very short period. So confrontation could be very stable, but uh, you never know how long is, it is going to take. I would say that uh, in um, some years, some years, I would not tell you when, 
But uh, U.S.-Russia relations would be transformed, definitely, because Russia would have to adopt a reality that it's not a global superpower anymore, it's just a significant power. And being just a significant power means that uh, you need to somehow overcome your messianic uh, strategic culture. And that's just an objective reality. Uh, and at the same time, the United States of America would have to accept the reality that they, uh, they are not in the unipolar world anymore, that uh, there is not only Russia, it is China, India, Brazil, Africa, well, Europe, which might be much more independent strategically, and that uh, they, they, they also are very significant, very significant, very powerful, but one of many. And uh, when both sides accept it, and we see that it's, uh, there are signs of this gradual uh, process. In the United States of America, more and more politicians from the new generation uh, are more skeptical about unipolarity, international, global international order, and so on. They are more about kind of, well, it's national interests. We, we have them. We need to implement them. But it's, it should be not so expensive, guys. And uh, in Russia, I believe uh, this discussion is going. This discussion is going. Because for now, it's not a good time for fundamental reconsideration of your place in the world. Because of uh, we all understand that uh, during a war, it is uh, very difficult to do. Um, but uh, in time, uh, it is going, I believe, and uh, when it happens, uh, then we probably see a fundamental reconsideration of the U.S.-Russia relations, and uh, this model of relations would be much more pragmatic and much more focused on uh, cooperation in different spheres, but not idealistic cooperation. We are not going to love each other, definitely. More pragmatic cooperation. Professor Novikov, thank you for your time. I believe it was an excellent talk. Thank you so much. You have listened to the Understanding Russia podcast. Today's episode was produced by Fedor Alexeyev. It was mixed and mastered by Stefko Stoykova and Slavko Sergeyevich. Our research assistant and fact checker was Liana Bersanova. And the hosts of this episode were Oleg Rostamov and Stefan Stoyanov. The episode would not have been possible without the help of the International Laboratory of World Oil Studies and the New Regionalism. We remind you that all opinions you've heard belong to those who said them. Thank you all for listening. See you next time and stay safe.